0: Welcome to Enid Monthly In-Depth, the podcast with Enid people, for Enid people. In today's episode, we talk with Maestro Douglas Newell, the music director of the Enid Symphony Orchestra, Oklahoma's oldest symphony. We talk with Doug about how he got to Oklahoma, the symphony orchestra, and his plans for the future of the orchestra. This podcast was originally set to come out in time for their latest show and fundraiser, but unfortunately, those have had to be postponed check out their Facebook page or their website at EnidSymphony.org for more information about what's coming next. And other news, please be sure to visit EnidMonthly.com to nominate your favorite places to shop, dine, and be served as part of Enid Monthly's Best of Enid 2022. But in the meantime, here's Maestro Newell. Hi Douglas, really glad to uh, be here with you today. Well, thanks for coming up. Well, great. Well, hey, we're here with Douglas Newell from the Enid Symphony Orchestra, and uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, him growing up, talk about uh, him doing things, uh, events that they, special events that they've got coming up, including their fundraiser, and all kinds of other good stuff. Are you ready?
1: I am. I am a source of information <laughs> well great.
0: well, well Douglas I uh, read your bio so I know that you've got quite a few uh, really interesting stories so I'm really excited to hear about it but Uh-oh. you didn't grow up in Enid right
1: <laughs> no I grew up in Charlotte North Carolina okay and I I went, uh, went all through uh, primary and secondary school there graduated from South Mecklenburg High School in 1969 the, the marvelous class went to college in 69. Um, I went to Pfeiffer College for two years to study, majored in church music and, and voice, and then I transferred from there after the second year to the North Carolina School of the Arts where I studied singing, but while I was there I took a conducting class, and uh, actually the the chancellor of the School of the Arts, Robert Ward, who had was first American to win a Pulitzer Prize for an opera he composed. Um, uh, Mr. Ward was, was so kind, he came to the first concert I conducted and said, you know, uh, if you wanna go to Juilliard next year and be in their conducting class, I can make that happen. He said, but if you stay here, I will give you more opportunities than you would have there. And he said, but you'll have to finish the degree in singing, so so I did, and, and never, ever regretted it. Uh, and then after that I uh, actually went back to another graduate school for a year to study singing a little more and then I, I won a conducting audition in Boston at New England Conservatory for a two-year program uh, where we had a 110 piece orchestra to work with three times a week. So it's a pretty intense uh, program. Uh, But that's, that got me up into my late 20s and uh, that marvelous point in life where I met Mrs. Newell, LaWanna, and um, you know, let's just, um, all the magic seems to have happened in Boston.
0: Well, did, uh, were you interested in music from a very early age, or was it kind of later developing in high school? Or
1: I, I always was interested. My dad uh, had a beautiful tenor voice. He was the choir director in the Little Country Baptist Church in, that I grew up in in Fort Mill, South Carolina. Uh, my mom had grown up in that church, and dad moved into the community, and they met and were married Christmas Day, 1934. I have three older brothers, they're all musical. One is uh, Dr. John Newell, and he is a pianist as well as a a, a known composer, an excellent composer. But our mom had a scholarship to go to college um, and the depression hit and she was unable to attend. So she decided that all of her children would take piano lessons. And so we all had piano lessons starting at age eight or nine. And uh, then in fifth grade, I began uh, taking a class in violin in the the orchestra class at my elementary school. There were four of us. And out of the four of us, um, one was a better pianist. She uh, died in a tragic car accident in high school. The, uh, w- one of the others, was a, there are two guys, two girls, the other guy uh, became a, a minister of music and to this day plays the violin in church, quite often he was a good violinist. But the third, uh, the, the other girl was the concert mistress of the Bogota Columbia uh, Symphony Orchestra wow. and retired there, retired uh, back to Chattanooga, I believe is where she lives now and and played in the Chattanooga Symphony. She was the most accomplished string player but we were all together through high school. Uh, It was in the 10th grade I began studying singing. I wanted to be like my dad except I wanted to sing opera and uh, you know I was very serious about it. I had a marvelous voice teacher and was learning things in French, Italian, German, and even Russian. I won a, a second place in the Southeast United States in a vocal competition for high school singers um, as a baritone singing uh, a Russian song cycle in Russian at age 17, and uh, so I so I followed that. I think maybe I wanted to sing opera because my fifth and sixth grade general music teacher, was absolutely a gorgeous lady, and I heard her sing an opera, sing a leading role in the Charlotte Opera, and I think probably a crush um, on Joy Brown led me to, she'll never know that. But,
0: (laughs) but. uh, What do you mean, you don't think she's gonna hear the Enid monthly podcast? Well, she might,
1: (laughs) I might have to find her and share it with her. But, um, no, she was a, a marvelous lyric soprano and um, she, was, she was quite an inspiration uh, musically. I actually got into trouble very young because of music, because um, my fifth grade elementary teacher, a uh, general classroom teacher, teacher Marjorie Campbell, um, was of the, she was in her final year of teaching. She had taught all three of my older brothers one of her other students was the evangelist, Billy Graham. And they were all, we were all fifth grade students of hers at different times. But Mrs. Campbell, and those, at that time, your um, classroom teacher would come around and you would open every, every morning. You opened with the pledge to the flag, uh, prayer, um, and, and singing. And oddly enough, I would, uh, we, we had to learn all of the state songs, and I would always ask to sing Oklahoma. I, I'd never been here, had no idea, but I thought it's fascinating. So anyhow, um, my family, my dad and my brothers, we all sang at church. My mother actually had what we call no tonal memory. She could not repeat a sequence of pitches. After about the third or fourth note, she would she would get lost, and yet my dad had such a beautiful voice, and and she loved our singing. But but anyhow, uh, I even I sang my first solo in church at age five, away in a manger, and I can still see my dad's face standing in front of the choir directing uh, on that Christmas Eve service. But but nonetheless, I digress, and that's one of my. Um, pluses and minuses as a person, <laughs> I suppose. So, Coda but, Stories. But, but anyhow, uh, yes, I, w- I wanted to be a singer. But, Mrs. Campbell, we would, at, at home, we would harmonize. We would sing in parts. It was normal. And so, one Monday morning, we're all singing America the Beautiful, and Mrs. Campbell is walking around giving us a grade and how well we matched pitch. And she comes to me and grabs, I'm harmonizing with the little girl who grew up next door, uh, who also had a lovely voice. And Mrs. Campbell grabs me up by the collar and says, go stand in the corner. Everybody knows you're supposed to sing, in the, sing the melody. You have no talent like the rest of your family. And they said, How about you? That's what she said to me. So I had to stand in the corner for 30 minutes in the fifth grade for harmonizing to America the Beautiful. Um, All I can say is if I ever do have the privilege of directing the Heavenly Choir, Mrs. Campbell may be moved from the first soprano to the second (laughs) alto section. I don't don't know, I haven't faced that situation yet and it may not be likely that I will. But nonetheless, that was one. And then the second time I got in trouble for being a young musician was in the seventh grade, when we were in seventh grade, my dad and mom, and, and my brother Roger, just older than I, took a trip. I, I mean, John, I'm sorry. We took a trip to Scotland, to Glasgow, Scotland, to visit my brother Roger. And while we were there on the television, we see the Beatles. And it's in November before they come to America uh, in January. And we're on Ed Sullivan. Well, we go back, come back to the United States, and then it was announced they were coming to America and my mother let me grow my hair as long as John Lennon's hair, which isn't much longer than it is right now, but rather short when you look at the original Beatles, maybe a little mop-headed, a little floppy, what you would say, but um, anyhow, I learned At that age, you know, we all wore Chuck Taylors. They're a big thing now, but everybody had Chucks because that's all you had. And they had these enormously long shoelaces. Well, I learned that I figured out my violin looked like Paul McCartney's guitar. And after gym class, I had orchestra class. So I could take that Chuck Taylor shoelace with me from gym class and make a strap for my violin and play it as a guitar and chord it and sing. And one day we were in orchestra and I was, the the teacher didn't show up, so I climbed up on a file cabinet and was in the midst of singing She Loves You Yeah 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 and I Want to Hold Your Hand and the assistant principal walked in to tell us our teacher wasn't going to be there for the day and he was rather incensed that I would treat a musical instrument like that and uh, they didn't put me on probation or anything or suspend me but he did call my dad and apparently they had a neat conversation about it and they didn't know what would become of me Uh, but at least I was imaginative (laughs) and uh, I mean all the kids liked it I enjoyed entertaining so What's the
0: harm? <laughs> well, I really like what you said because uh, I can't sing either, and uh, so I'm going to tell everybody it's just because I have no tonal memory. Yeah, so it, <laughs> that sounds—that's a nicer way to say it than uh, I just can't sing. There, there are a lot of
1: elements of talent, and tonal memory is one. There are true monotones who have trouble matching pitch. Now, when they speak, their voice goes up and down with inflection, but and and that's different pitches, just like singing different notes in a song. But at, at, at the same time, the, the challenge of sustaining that into a musical pitch is a little different.
0: Uh, I'm not sure if you uh, know Sarah Coburn, Tom Coburn's uh, daughter. I do uh, not
1: know her. I, I've heard her many She's months. a fantastic
0: singer. Oh, yeah. And uh, she was our uh, uh, vocal coordinator for Varsity Review at Oklahoma State. Yes. And uh, she, she would walk by and she just told me, just. She said, just mouth the words. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, was... you were told by one of the best. <laughs> yes, for sure. sure. I'll, I'll never forget that. Uh, but, uh, well, after the, so after you uh, took a lot of these classes, you said composing classes, uh, or excuse me, uh, conducting classes, uh, uh, what did you decide to do at that point?
1: Well, <clears throat> when I finished the uh, master's degree in conducting at New England Conservatory, I, I stayed there for a year. And applied for jobs. I was conductor of the Boston Summer Opera for a couple of years, but um, I still had my eye on this girl I wanted to marry, and um, I wanted a job. So I went back to North Carolina. I lived at home uh, for, for a year or so and found a job in Tennessee as director of choral activities at a college because I had vocal training. And from there, I was there about two and a half years, uh, concurrently I became the assistant conductor of the Knoxville Symphony. I I drove over to Knoxville one day and introduced myself. And as it turned out, my teacher in New York, one of the last teachers I studied with, had been someone who was uh, key to the success, early success of the conductor of the Knoxville Symphony at that time. So he took me on as, as an assistant. And from there, um, I was engaged mid-year to go to Baylor University and conduct their opera, um, their opera program for a semester. And from there, uh, that was a one semester deal, from there I found out about the Enid Phillips Symphony Orchestra. And um, came up here Auditioned as it turned out Wes McCoy who was the uh, chair of the Phillips University Music Department at the time uh, That they were searching for a conductor uh, Knew some people in Tennessee who had uh, Hired me to do some conducting at their college uh, an orchestra concert And so things sort of worked together. So I came here Uh, I won an audition as a the second assistant conductor of the Oklahoma Symphony Orchestra Which was full-time orchestra at that time it folded about uh, five, or four or five years later, maybe only three. Um, most people don't realize there was a time when three of the five orchestras in Oklahoma folded for financial reasons, and the two that stayed afloat throughout that time were Bartlesville in Oklahoma City si- and Enid, Enid Symphony Orchestra. So uh, I was very fortunate to be invited as a guest of the New York Philharmonic to a conductor seminar and. Uh, 1989 and also uh, to guest conduct and to conduct the uh, San Diego Symphony in an audition for a international conductor's program. I um, had some very fine, very fine opportunities um, and, and continue to have some marvelous things to do. Just a few years ago I became the conductor of the spring opera productions each year at uh, UCO in Edmond marvelous uh, performance space, student body, voice faculty, instrumental faculty. And uh, that's just an interesting thing. And then just about a year and a half ago, I began studying violin privately um, because I wanted to, and I had time during the pandemic, we weren't doing concerts. And uh, so I'm going to give a senior recital this summer. Why are you grinning? Uh, well, that, that's exciting. No, I, I'm a bona fide senior. I'm seventy. Okay,
0: <laughs> I like it. It's a real senior recital. <laughs> so. <laughs> so rather than a senior in high school recital, it'll be a, a or a senior in college. But okay,
1: it will have a few. Well, it'll have some music that's challenging for me, let's put it that way. And uh, Well,
0: you, start, you said you played some violin in high school,
1: right? I did. I played in, in public school program uh, from fifth grade through, through high school. I, I never studied privately, and that's just one of those things that has come back around, a, a marvelous opportunity here with uh, a teacher who moved into Enid a couple of years ago with her her husband, who is who's in the Air Force, who is at Advance. At, at, at and um, turns out she knew some people I knew, and she came and auditioned for the symphony, and was a little blown, quite blown away by her abilities. And um, you know, she's, she's, I've had some of the finest teachers of music uh, in the world, and I can tell you she's a fine, fine. Teacher,
0: excellent. Well, when did you start full time here at the Enid Symphony Orchestra? Orchestra. Uh,
1: well, I was hired initially as half time with the Enid Symphony Orchestra, half time at Phillips University. Uh, the Symphony paid half of my salary and benefits to the university, and the university gave me a half time teaching load, and the other half I managed and managed the Symphony and conducted, and and that arrangement lasted for about. Four or five years and then the Symphony Association took over my employment uh, fully I believe in 1989, 90, somewhere around. So it you've there. been here
0: since about 1985
1: ish? I've been in Enid since uh, the summer of 1983. Yeah I came to stay for three years and you know there's an old saying that if you reinvent yourself every seven years you will be happy and will be fulfilled throughout life. And fortunately, I've had the opportunity to do that um, and to raise a family in really a wonderful place. Um, You know, my, my children that went to school were all quite competitive academically with students from much larger cities that you would think would have much finer educational systems. It's not true. It's, it's not necessarily true. Um, there have been many benefits to raising children in Enid, and, and I have a I have a theory that um, the reason you see so many successful people from Enid is simply that it does take that village to raise a child. And and in a community like this, we're generally a a bit more collegial, supportive. We know our children's friends. We know their families. um, We're we're, we're colleagues. Um, It's it's a bit different from growing up in a larger uh, setting where you don't, know everybody and and where uh community efforts involve scats of people you don't know simply because there are more people but here uh, we we know who is involved in making enid a better place to live and uh that's a very that's a very important thing because children leave here and they know how to network naturally i believe at least the ones who pay attention to. The ones (laughs) who pay attention to their parents. They know how to network. And that is, that's a key. I mean, I'll never forget my seventh grade English teacher made what today I recall as the most, one of the most important statements I ever heard from a teacher. And uh, this was from a sizable uh, junior high school in Charlotte, North Carolina, and and she said, we were complaining about a writing assignment, and she said, you know, the population of the United States is growing so much. Now this would have been 1963 or 62. And she said, jobs are going to be so competitive by the time you get out of college and throughout your professional careers because more people are going to college, more people are seeking professional, there's simply more people. But the person who's going to surface to the top in interviews uh, and in applications is the person who can best state their case. And that includes writing skills, speaking skills, uh, interpersonal relationship skills. And that you know, that, that's some of the best advice I, that I would give to children today and to young people.
0: Well, so you've been here about 38 years over that course. Brag on the Enid Symphony Orchestra a little bit. It's uh, pretty uncommon for a town of this size to have a professional orchestra, isn't it?
1: It, it is quite uncommon. Um, and a little bit of it, um, you know, it, the, there was a group of players that were formed uh, in 1905, prior to the opening of Phillips University. Um, they were called the Enid Players, about 21 people, and they're the seed through which the the present-day Enid Symphony Orchestra uh, came. Um, then when the University opened, they hired uh, a Dutchman, Ryan uh, who was uh, a violin teacher and he led the orchestra for about 30 years. And in my 30th year, I got this odd feeling because he, he passed away in his 30th year. And I was very thankful to finish year 30 and get into year 31. And I'm still thankful every day as I see the sunrise and the opportunities that, that arouse. There, there, there were a number of different conductors. Uh, now, I've, I've, I've had the longest tenure among conductors of the symphony. The second longest, actually, though, was my immediate predecessor, Max Tromley, who was here 13 years and who took tremendous strides with the orchestra, because it was under his leadership that the, the Nonprofit association, the Enid Phillips Symphony Association, was created so that it was an arm, a, 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 a 501c3 arm to support the growth of the orchestra. And of course, the university had scholarshiping to offer. The community had, uh, the, the board was raising money for the guest artist series, and, and they sort of brought it away from the university setting entirely to a, a series that would have guest artists and bring other orchestras, what, what have you, and, and run a subscription series of concerts uh, where patrons would buy a subscription each year. Uh, then I came along in 1983, and uh, of course when the university folded, uh, in 97 uh, during that year there were a lot of changes when I came for example there were four full-time full-time string teachers in the Enid Public Schools that diminished over a number of years and actually I led the high school orchestra as a part-timer for about 11 years and there were only two full timers at that time uh, now it's grown back. Uh, the high school went to everyday orchestra and has two orchestras uh, and, and and so that, that program is on very much on the right track at this time. But in all of that, uh, we uh, when the university closed we had to find a place to play and for about a year and a half we went around to different churches. We played at the high school, we played at Waller uh, and You know, one day I was at Doherty Press uh, getting a season brochure made for the following year and Greg Smith, uh, who was married to Denise Doherty at the time, uh, came in. I knew he was a Freemason and I said, hey, I said, we're going to finish our season next year with Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute, and it's based upon Masonic induction ritual. And I said, I want you to get this book to go down to Guthrie to play in the Masonic Temple down there to present this opera down there. I said, well, I'm not going to do it unless you present it in the one here in Enid first. I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, meet me at the corner of Washington and Broadway after lunch and I'll show you. And now you have to know that from my childhood up until the night before I graduated at New England Conservatory with my master's degree in conducting, I had one recurring dream and it started when I was very little and it might happen twice a week, once six months later, two years later, three times one month. But it was this dream of being trapped in this old building with no, couldn't get out of the building. All you could do is climb the stairwells and it was dark. And you had to inch your way up the stairwells and you get to the top. And all of a sudden, I'd start opening these doors, and there was all these beautiful, gilded, European palace-style rooms. So, okay, the last time I had that would have been in, that dream would have been in May of 1978. And then I came here in 83, and it was in March of 1997 that Greg brought me up here for the first time. We came in the door. The masons had wanted to buy the building, but they didn't have the funds to buy it from the owners at that time. And there was no electricity, so we had to climb the four stairs, uh, literally hands and knees, with little uh, cigarette lighters. You know, our cell phones didn't have lights. cameras, etc. And they weren't even flip phones, I don't think. But anyhow, we get up to this top floor, to this fourth floor, and all of a sudden, I'm looking around and opening doors, and it doesn't look like those gilded rooms of palatial rooms that I would see in that dream. It looked like the remnants of Vienna after World War II, (laughs) It had been empty uh, up here, for all intents and purposes, since uh, Mr. Knox sent the Masons packing in 1946, after World War II. 51 years, and um, about a month later, I was at a reception uh, for some artists from the Moscow Ballet who were performing with the symphony, and it was a reception at Lou Ward's house, we walked in, and Lou and Myra were standing there greeting guests, and he says, I hear you've been in my building. He said, couldn't we do a party? Couldn't we do something up there to benefit the symphony? And I said, oh, I have some ideas. <laughs> so that was like the 17th of March. The 24th of April of that year, this was 97, and I asked the symphony board to give me five years to raise $300,000 to begin a campaign to uh, convert this facility into an arts facility. And um, a friend of mine said, uh, you know, I know someone who loves music that might be really interested in this project. Why don't you give her a call? And you know, I'm, you have to know I'm a recluse. I'm, I'm not an outgoing person, naturally. Uh, I have to be. And it's become more natural. But they gave me their phone number and I called and Joan Allen answered the phone. And I said, hello, this is Douglas Newell. I'd like to speak with Joan Allen. And she said, stop right there how can i help you she said and 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 this is you know things happen in a great plan and you never know what small act of kindness or thoughtfulness how it's the rewards that will come your way for that Sometime before that, um, the symphony was asked to play at the State Episcopal Diocesan's Conference, which was here in the old Cherokee Strip Conference Center. And we were asked to bring a string chamber orchestra and entertain during dinner, and I agreed to do that and, and was happy to do that. Well, David Allen was to have been the chair uh, in fact, he was the chair and organized that state conference, as, as I understand. And he passed away on the Monday before that conference. And so everybody was, you know, that was quite unexpected. Everybody was in shock. Now, I did not know the Allen family at that, at that point. Um, and as a sort of, afternoon thought before we played that evening. I knew they belonged to the Episcopal Church and the memorial service was the morning of that banquet, uh, that that final banquet of the diocese. And that afternoon I went over to the church and asked if I could see a hymn book. I wanted to play a piece of music in memory of David Allen. I thought that would be a kind thing to do. And I found a marvelous hymn by Ralph Vaughan Williams to the tune of Rosimeter, It's the old English name for the hymn tune. And it was about the importance of family. And so that night um, at the dinner, um, when they were thanking us for playing, I I said, well, I I would like to play one more piece for you in memory of David Allen and I read the text of the hymn, and then we played this beautiful string orchestra version by Ralph Lauren Williams. Well, well, Joan was not there. But when I called her sometime later and introduced myself, and she said, how can, I meet? How, how can I help you? I've been wanting to meet you to thank you for what you did for David. I mean, you, 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 you do not, live your life with the, the game plan of doing things for rewards. You, 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 you live your life uh, to love unconditionally and to be kind to other people. And it just so happens that we form this great Friendship she became very interested in this and was key along with my other friend Betty Elton who Was the chairman of the board that hired me to come to Enid the two of them were co-chairs and assisted in raising all of the money for this facility So I met her On the 25th 26th of March of 97 the board had just on April 20. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, of of April, of April of 97. The board had just voted to give me five years to raise $300,000. We got to work. Joan and Betty and I put together a steering committee. We had a meeting and immediately after that first meeting I was handed an envelope with a check for $100,000. And Someone else matched that, and then we went to the city. We knew at that time the city was never going to build a performing arts facility that wasn't in the city interest at that time or in their telescope. And I asked city council to give us $100,000 for this project so I could raise the rest of the money within and and outside of Enid. And it was a mixed vote, but they gave me, they decided they would pay us, donate and contribute $20,000 a year for five years under the condition I not come back for any more money for this facility. (laughs) And I have kept my word on that. Um, I don't, you know, this was, their $100,000 investment generated now what's over $4 million worth of income for this and and a large portion of it from outside of enid a large por- most a um, uh, larger portion from inside of enid but we set about writing grants and inviting people to see this place and so by the end of june i had uh, well by the first of september of that year i had six hundred thousand dollars in the bank and pledges for another million and a half and so we began what I thought was going to take five years to even get started. We began and we opened we closed our concert season in 1977 or 1997-98 with the first act of Mozart's opera, the magic flute, in the old temple in Enid. And we did it in construction garb. Everybody had to bring their folding chair up the stairs, the elevators didn't work, there were no lights, so we had to do it in the afternoon. We took a six-month intermission, came back, and the Symphony Hall was fully decorated. What was the hall initially designed as? It was the, the Blue Lodge room of the Masonic, of Enid's Second Masonic Temple. It was begun in 1921 and completed in 1924.
0: Was the whole building, was this the whole building, the Masonic <clears throat> Lodge? Or? Well,
1: the, the Masonic fraternities all over the United States at that time were building lodges, and the way they would do it, they would build an office building of one or two, three stories, and on top build lodge, two stories of lodge. And you would have a York Wright Room where uh, you were inducted into the lodge. You'd have a Blue Lodge which where you became a 32nd degree mason. Uh, you would have an entertainment center, hence the theater ballroom, and then storage space, which this marvelous space we're in is the art gallery, Jane Champlin Art Gallery, uh, which we enlarged from its original size. I think we took down a wall right here and actually went over there. Um, But this was a common pattern throughout the United States back in the early 1900s. In fact, the journal record building in Oklahoma City had long since been converted for the journal record and after the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, ceiling panels fell during that event and um, exposed were all these beams and these things. It was a Masonic temple, the top floors were Masonic. And it sort of, you know, there were, surely there were people who knew it, of course, just like they knew of this. but. They were leaving us, you know. They were. It wasn't uh, common uh, knowledge. Is, it was no longer common knowledge, and so, you know, this this board of directors uh, and and these ladies who who got behind this thing, made an incredible thing happen, and and to my small mind, simply because they believed in a dream that I had as a child. And so the orchestra began playing more concerts each year. Um, they, the, the university had folded, so we lost the faculty and the student body there. We began we had, and, and the high school program had, had, had grown smaller, so we lost students to draw from there. So it evolved into a, what is now professional orchestra. And, um, Explain what
0: that means. When you say professional orchestra, well, you mean it means you pay that the
1: they're all they're all paid, and it, and is this this case they're paid a good stipend for their services. Um, we have a per service contract, which means there's not. St- Fifty-six people living full-time in Enid playing in the Enid Symphony Orchestra, but the players both here who li- who do live here and the players who live outside of Enid are all professional caliber orchestras, uh, uh, players, musicians, who are paid a professional wage for now, their so participation. So did that
0: start in the 90s, the professional it, side of it? it
1: it, it had started, actually, in the, in the mid-'80s. It was growing that way. Uh, the orchestra had not been compensated. Uh, only the people that came in from the outside were compensated when I first came here. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, one of the first things I said was, well, you know, it, it, it's hardly fair to uh, expect the same Quality from everybody. If you are paying some people and not paying others, and and of course in the '80s union scale was not high. I, I mean, it was like fifteen dollars a service, or it, was, it went from twelve to fifteen. I think the first year I was here, or something. It was like, you know, but the cost of living wasn't very high either. So um, anyhow. It's, it's, it, it changed rapidly over the years. Um, the first year I was here, the, the programming was, they were bringing in the Oklahoma Symphony and the Tulsa Philharmonic to play classic concerts. And the uh, Enid Phillips Symphony would play maybe four of the seven concerts. One might be a guest group that had no orchestra. And so now the orchestra plays everything. Um, even through the pandemic, <clears throat> so we've been very, very lucky there. Uh, we have this great facility, you know, at Government Springs Park, which, by the way, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. We're opening next season on Cherokee Strip Days weekend with a production of Oklahoma no. in Government Springs Park. Uh, that, that's just recently been approved. and Always I, a crowd pleaser. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> It, well, you know, like I said, when I was in fifth grade, I kept asking, "Let's sing Oklahoma." Well, the reason I would ask it is because it was the best state song. That's right. You good, could say it's got one by Rodgers I mean, the old, store, the old North State just didn't hold a candle to it.
0: I'm say what you will about Oklahoma, we do have a great state. You song. got
1: the best state song there is.
0: Well, so. You, at the beginning, you said that uh, you were drawing a lot of the the members from Enid area, mm-hmm. and that's uh, from the high school and the, uh, the university orchestras. Uh, and, and then it kind of went away, that, or those had uh, diminished a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, have they in- increased participation from those areas? I, I, of course, we don't have a university anymore. We, but
1: we, the, we now have a youth symphony, which, which serves to where... Uh, the advanced high school and and junior high players. uh, They they have a marvelous conductor and a marvelous program. Um, So now we're focused on a a, a bit more challenging repertoire. Um, And uh, so it is, uh, the, the players from Enid are all, as I said, they're all competent professionally players. It's not, it is no longer and it, I, I don't think it ever really was just come and play if you want to. Even, you know, years back, I, I think there was, a, there was an expectation level. There was a healthy competition yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah. But we have school teachers who move in, uh, uh, you know, come in from time to time who play. You, you know, we, we have a, people say, how many people play in the orchestra? Well, or how many members? Well, it's not a matter of that and this is a hard point to make sometimes. The composer of the music tells you how many players are going to play in that performance. Um, If it is a a piece of music that was written by before Haydn and Mozart, it might have a handful of woodwind and brass players or none. It might be just a string program. For example, one of the most popular pieces of classical music, early classic music, is Vivaldi's Four Seasons. We're gonna play those next year on a tour. And um, it's for only strings with a harpsichord, a keyboard, to fill in the harmonies. Um, but you get to Mozart's Symphony, and all of a sudden you have a flutes added in, a pair of oboes, a pair of bassoons, a pair of horns, and a pair of trumpets, and a pair of timpani. Well, that went along for a while. Beethoven comes along and adds a trombone section to the symphony. Well, then you get into the mid to late 1800s and they start adding things like, oh, there's a tuba. There are four French horns now. There are three trombones and a tuba. There are three or four trumpets or two trumpets and two cornets. There are three, two flutes and a piccolo or three flutes and a piccolo three oboes and an English horn, three clarinets and a bass clarinet or an E-flat clarinet or what have you. So, and it's really related to instrumental technology because these newer woodwind instruments were being created uh, in in the 1800s. And as they they came into existence and became more widely accepted and, and people learned to play them masterfully, composers began to write for them. So, the later in the time period you get, the closer to our century, the larger the orchestra is. So for example, I've played concerts in this hall with 79 players, I've played concerts with 13. Messiah, Handel's Messiah, takes about 18 to 22 players to play and and do exactly what Handel wrote. So it kind of yes, depends it. on the piece that it you guys are... It depends on the piece of music. Uh, now, I mean, we've played pieces that add a rock band in, you know, or a swing band with it, something like that. So <clears throat> it really is the genius in the mind of the composer and what he or she can hear uh, as combinations of
0: sound. When you're deciding on a, a piece that you're going to do for the next year, do you plan those out a couple of years in advance, I would guess? <laughs> well...
1: I I have a few more pieces in mind than I do years left on the earth at this point, I think. <laughs> I hope so. I hope I never get it all done, really, because then I would be bored. So um, yes, I keep a running list of repertoire in my mind and sometimes I'll write it down on a Word document just so I don't forget it and then I forget where the Word document is. But anyhow, uh, yes, there there are many, many pieces that I would love to do. But then that goes back to, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm both the executive director of the orchestra and it's And, and, and its music director, which means I raise the money. One of my jobs is raising the money, and of course the board has responsibility in that. They do great work with their fundraisers each year. Uh, so unlike most other conductors, in, in a major orchestra like New York Philharmonic, whatever have you, the conductor will say, I, I, I wanna play this this year this gonna be our programs and it's up to the management of the orchestra to to raise the money and to see that they can make the maestro happy and the audience happy and I want these guest artists and we're going you know and they've got to go find out how much you know it's going to take to bring in this violinist who wants hundred fifty thousand dollars a night how many times they can present that with a, a multi-million dollar musician budget and in fact, in the major orchestras, there's are full-time positions for generally 110 to 120 musicians. Uh, a section violinist in an orchestra like the New York Philharmonic can make $200,000 a year. Uh, very competitive, very high level, um, very high demand workload. But uh, in this situation, when I say I want to do this piece of music or bring this person to perform with the symphony. I'm actually standing there knowing what it costs for each individual player and each guest artist. So I have to temper it with how to balance a season between larger things and smaller things, hence more expensive and less expensive things to balance it out. Uh, We have an annual budget of around $340,000, which isn't Quite so much in an orchestra world where you're presenting five concerts a year. I'm the only full-time employee. Uh, hopefully, in the not too distant future, I'll be the the conductor, and someone else will be the business manager. That would be take a big load off of my That's mind. That's the dream, right? Well, and if it happens, it happens, and if it, <laughs> and if it doesn't, I will at least be preparing people to know what to do. Uh, if I'm directing Miss Margie Campbell in that heavenly choir. But, uh, (laughs) anyhow, like I said, that's another quest that probably won't happen, but anyhow. uh, So, it it is a matter of economics. It's not a volunteer orchestra. Uh, We own a facility. We have insurances. We have utilities. Uh, You know, we have uh, expenses of any business but uh you know it's it's been a it, it, it's a wonderful challenge and yeah there are days you say oh gosh how we're we gonna make this work and it works
0: well you said that uh at- the piece depends on how many players you have so mm-hmm. have you found it very difficult to recruit any particular uh, instrument that you say no. "Well, this piece has a this in it and uh, that's going to be really hard you, for me to find somebody look
1: i can only hire so many players a year and and that's what's kind of uh you know that that's I, I wish I could hire everybody. We have quite a waiting list and, and quite a list of supplemental musicians. Uh, we have as many on the supplemental list of people that want to play. Is that because they just specialty. just love to play? Love and they, to there's play. very few chances to they, play professionally. They, they love to play. And, and every orchestra playing the bigger pieces is a little more rare. An example is the, the saxophone, one of the most beautiful, two, two of the great pieces. Uh, ever written uh, were the um, pictures at an exhibition of uh, Mussorgsky, the Russian composer who the Frenchman Ravel orchestrated and in one of the movements he he, he, it's a beautiful saxophone solo the other piece that has a great saxophone solo is a piece by Frenchman Messiaen called La Création du monde, the creation of the world and it it has an extensive saxophone solo on it. So, there are a number of excellent saxophone players out there who, while they have many opportunities in wind ensembles and and concert bands, uh, marching bands, but do not have the opportunity to play with Symphony Orchestra because it's not called for that frequently, whereas an oboist, you know, got to have one for every, except when you play Vivaldi and there are no oboes in it. <laughs> so it's, it's um, there's there's no difficulty in finding the players we want to find, and I will say this, this orchestra is always highly complimented by the guest artists that come in here. Uh, you know, there are, and and I will say this of the orchestras I've guest conducted in other places in cities five times the size of Enid That don't play as well and don't have access to as good musicians and One of the things I mean one of the The knack of being a music director where you're the one that engages the musicians is putting the right people together who work well together and and that's that's a significant thing if you in in any business if you hire the right people and entrust them with the freedom give create the atmosphere so that they can perform their job comfortably and creatively and to the best of their abilities more often than not your employees will do that, you know. My dad used to say he managed an airline in Charlotte, North Carolina for 32 years. And he said, well, you know, you can either browbeat everybody into working for you or you can love them into it. And he said, you get a lot farther loving them into it. And I, I hope everybody thinks I feel that way about them. <laughs> I, I, I do. Uh, it's... it's um, it's a marvelous thing. Someone, someone one of my children said, asked me one time, said, uh, Daddy, why do you, why do you, uh, uh, something about, why, why did you decide to be a conductor? And I said, well, you know, it's relatively little work, and you get paid to stand there and complain. And I said, And jokingly, I said, I don't even like music. I'm just relatively good at it, and the pay's pretty good for no more work than it is. (laughs) And I (laughs) said, but you study all the time. I said, yeah, that's true. (laughs) But I was just kidding. So if anyone's listening, please don't take that as a serious comment. I say that out of respect to the profession. Uh, with a lot of respect to the profession. Well,
0: that's good to hear that uh, that's not difficult to find players uh, for something like this. And so uh, are most of the players from Enid or are most of them from no, out of town?
1: No, really ab- about uh, 25% Okay, on, it, on, on any given. And, and it depends, on again, on what we're playing. Has that been pretty consistent
0: over the last 20 years or so?
1: I think so, yeah. No?
0: Yeah. Uh, do you is there a particular piece that you are, are just particularly proud of that y'all have done over the last?
1: Oh my gosh! You
0: know, Thirty eight years.
1: You know, um, it, it, two performances of the Beethoven Ninth Symphony. Uh, one at uh, was was a Convention Hall was the first one, and then second one I think was at Emmanuel before they uh, rebuilt the sanctuary and did away with the the choir loft up the. Back wall, which was a marvelous, marvelous choir loft. We brought in Canterbury Choral Society and Southwestern and Northwestern and Phillips, and and did the Brahms Requiem. Um, We did a symphony by the German Gustav Mahler, the the second symphony of of Mahler, which is entitled Resurrection. And it is about uh, dying, going to heaven and standing in front of God, and um, when we performed it, my father was in the last few weeks of his life. We knew he was going to pass. And it was just a – I think everybody knew the situation I was in that night. They were just extremely kind to me um, and, and, and played their best, and it was quite an accomplishment above and beyond for this orchestra. Uh, for an orchestra in any community. Um, I think uh, oh gosh well we've done the Planets of Gustav Holst. <laughs> that was a great effort and I love doing that. I love doing the musicals and the the operas that we've done uh, very much. It takes me back to my singing uh, yeah, days and the affinity I, I, I have for that. Um, I, for many years, avoided the music of Mozart with the orchestra because it's so difficult to perform and perform well. It's, it's, it's about clarity and about nuance, and it's not simply about the right notes at the right time in the right dynamic. You, you have to understand the essence um, of that, uh, one of my very favorite pieces of all is the. There are two that I love to play with this symphony, and uh, one is the Beethoven Sixth Symphony, the Pastoral, uh, and it's, it's so Beethoven wrote it when he was losing his hearing and and uh, was had had gone out to the country, believe it or not, to get away from the noise of the city. This is in the early 1800s. <laughs> My goodness, what the poor man would have thought now. And and the other is a great symphony by Felix Mendelssohn, the Reformation Symphony. And uh, it was written for the 300th anniversary of Reformation Day. And uh, Mendelssohn was Uh, converted Lutheran. Um, It opens in its opening uh, phrases it quotes the Dresden Amen, the threefold Amen that used to be sung after prayers in in Protestant churches and in high churches still is. Uh, But it ends with the final movement is based upon Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's, very few players know, it's one of the most significant hymns of my lifetime. Um, And I'll tell you the other because the story wouldn't be complete if I didn't. But when I was 19, uh, when I was 17, I was hired as a Choir director at a Lutheran church in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was my first conducting attempt. And that was through my senior year in high school. And I fell in love with a very beautiful young lady who, after my first year in college, uh, she was Lutheran. We wanted to be married, and we wanted in our ceremony the hymn A Mighty Fortress is Our God. She was kidnapped and murdered um, when I was 19. And we had that played. There's a marvelous, marvelous organ uh, arrangement of that hymn. And uh, her parents were so kind to me, uh, as a 19-year-old, and entrusting me with... with, um, decisions as to what would be played at her memorial. And I said, I want the recessional to be a mighty fortress. Um, It's our God. We wanted that as recessional, this particular organ thing, as recessional if we got married. And so that, today, is one of those pieces that saw me from a difficult time into times of great joy. Now the other hymn, you have to now I have to tell it because this story wouldn't be complete. Um, I didn't date for about five or six years after that. And then wouldn't you know of my great love of singing? The good Lord sent my way, a young lady with an absolutely beautiful lyric soprano voice, and one that happens to blend with mine, and who has made a great life partner. And for the entry hymn, when we were married at our wedding, uh, she, she and her dad came down to the processional, and they stood there, and the congregation joined in the singing of, now thank we all our God. So those those are the great hymns of my life. And uh, boy, now I'd tease her and say that I had to ask her to marry me three or four times and our mothers were so <laughs> pleased when we finally got married that they sang the loudest when the congregation began singing <laughs> Now Thank We All Our God, because I don't think they ever thought it would happen for a while. But it did, and and you know, I mean, Things work well. There's a great plan for those who love, and you know everybody. I, I I mean you're you're you've listened to me ramble now for some time, and I do hope you edit this well, <laughs> but. I will tell you, there is not a more fortunate person that has ever lived on this earth than me.
0: Well, that's nice. Well, has there been anybody in the orchestra that has uh, uh, moved on to much larger orchestras in New York or uh, other large cities that you're particularly proud of?
1: Well, I like them better when they stay here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it sure makes it easier right? they're, 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 they're more fun to be around uh, you know I have to say this I'm I'm most proud uh, are very proud of all the young musicians who have grown up here who have gone on to lead to lead public school music programs in Oklahoma and other states uh, and I'll go back to kids that were here the first year I came. Andy Johnston leads the orchestra program in Springfield, Missouri. Stephen Hughes leads Fort Smith Arkansas. Uh, Peter Marcus was teacher of the year uh, when he was uh, leading high school orchestras. Scott Jackson leads a marvelous program at, um, in Stillwater, the public school program uh, Rebecca Othout uh, has, has led orchestras, uh, these kids, and, and then they're the marvelous kids. I mean, we have a new dentist in town who was the concertmaster of the Enid High School Orchestra, Sydney Van Hooser she was now. then, she's Sydney Rogers now, but uh, Sydney went to achieve the Quartz Mountain, she achieved the All-State Orchestra, um, Numerous competition awards. Uh, Schumitz Som, same, same story. They're, they're actually in-laws now. Uh, he's in Norman, I believe. But, um, and, and look at Kyle Dillingham, who just kept fiddling and doing great things. I can still see him standing in the, up in the top of the bleachers at Enid High School at the end of football games. Fiddling for whoever would listen, <laughs> he did that. But um, we've had—I'm more proud of the young people who have come through and and have gone on to successful careers, some in music, some in not. But but leaders and accomplished people. And every once in a while, I hear from even more uh, students that that were in the high school orchestra when I was there. Um, and, and that's just a great thing. I mean, we've got some marvelous players here uh, Dina Hazelwanda, Daphne Doherty, who have been with the orchestra long before I came and are, and are still here. Uh, Kathy Jans with us, Mike Meisner, Dr. Michael Meisner, doctor of French horn. Uh, he moved back to Enid you know, some 10 years or so ago. And you'll have to correct me if my mathematics is wrong, um, but you know we we have seen some marvelous, marvelously talented young people grow up and go lead. Wonderful well, careers. I think that's
0: really sweet that, uh, that that's the people that really touch you or the people that go on to, uh, to do their own teaching. Well, so. like I
1: said, I like the ones who stay here better. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding.
0: Well, we've got a couple of – the, and the real reason why I'm here is you've got a couple of really uh, cool things that are coming up. On February 12th, you've got violets and roses. Talk well, a little bit about that.
1: <clears throat> you know, there's this inconvenient thing of the coronavirus – Covid and the omicron and Lord knows what's next. Uh, we decided last week to delay the February fifth fundraiser, the soiree, and to delay the February twelfth concert. So we're going to make it just a little bit different. Um, the The soiree is going to be presented on April the. 23rd, which is a concert night, but what we're going to do is is do this like they do in the big European cities. We're going to have a concert by the symphony at 5 o'clock and all of our subscribers already have tickets. That is um, the final concert of the season, except it won't be now. Um, And that that features the pianist Yaffe Schwung uh, who I've wanted to work with for a number of years. This will be the third year we've scheduled her and by golly there better not be any virus on April 23rd, but if there is, we'll schedule her for next year. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, but uh, the concert will be five to six. Following that, we'll have the soiree, uh, which will be a fantastic dinner, uh, an auction, and a dance, in the theater ballroom, and then Violets and Roses, which comes from a poem I sent to Mrs. Newell the, uh, in the, I think this third or fourth proposal. Roses are red, violets are blue. If you'll marry me, I'll marry you. Well, uh, we're doing this on Valentine's and it's Broadway songs, great love songs of Broadway. Rob Glaubitz, my friend who is chairing the music division at UCO right now and is a marvelous baritone singer, uh, is going to sing uh, things from uh, He's going to sing that Call the Wind Mariah, which I just love, and, and he's, he's going to sing things like uh, duets like All I Ask of You and uh, If I Loved You, and he's going to sing some things like She Loves Me and Buddy's Blues from Follies, um, Great Evening of Broadway. Except now what we're going to do is take violets and roses and make it roses for mom because we're going to do it Mother's Day afternoon uh, as a four o'clock concert, I believe, four or five o'clock on on Mother's Day, May the 8th. And that will be the final performance. And the reason we moved it then is that we can, if there is a problem, we always have the option of going to Government Springs Park
0: so those are the next two events in April are, and May.
1: Those are the the next the the last two symphony events for this for the, this year's subscription series. When we start uh, next season, it always begins with the Fourth of July concert in Middle Lake Park. Um, we also play concert uh, educational concerts um, designed by Carnegie Hall Educational Wing. There are about a hundred orchestras in the world that play these concerts each year. We're one of them and we're playing them for the Enid area elementary students on uh, March the 9th. And then we're going to play at the McKnight Center in Stillwater on April the 6th, uh, a set of Carnegie concerts uh, for Stillwater Public School students. I'm excited about that.
0: That's a beautiful facility. It's,
1: It's a lovely facility. Interestingly enough, the gentleman who did the acoustical design for that about uh, 22 years ago, did the acoustical design for Joan Allen Symphony Hall right here in the United Symphony Center.
0: Wow. Well, I'm just uh, so proud that Enid's got such a great symphony, uh, and uh, you know it's something that uh, obviously took a lot of work from you and a lot of money from other people. And uh, uh, so I uh, it's well said. So I, it's uh, <clears throat> it's really a privilege to have this kind of thing in Enid, and uh, we just want people to come out and check it out.
1: Well, thank you. It's it's just a, a great joy every day to be a part of this community.
0: Well, thank you, Meister Nolan, and we're looking forward to the upcoming events.
1: Thank you.